In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Jeremiah Lamphere. He lived in New York City during the 1850s. That period in American history was one marked by tension as the shadow of war loomed over America. There were strikes, depression, tailing banks, jobless lines, and an air of simmering violence. In many ways, doesn't sound all that different from our own day. Yet it was in this setting that Lamphere accepted the call to be a full-time city evangelist. And he walked the streets and knocked on doors, put up posters, and prayed constantly, all to no visible result. As discouragement increased, Lamphere looked for some new kind of idea and some new possibility or breakthrough. New York was a business town. He thought maybe men would come to a luncheon. So he nailed up his signs, and he called for a noonday lunch at the old Dutch church on Fulton Street. When the hour came, he sat patiently. One soul walked through the doors. A few minutes later, two others peeked in, and the handful of them had a nice meal together. Lamphere decided he'd give it one more week and see what happened. The following week, 20 men attended. At least it was a start. But 40 came on the third week, and then the men began to, got to know one another by name, and they actually asked Lamphere if he would move from a weekly gathering to a daily gathering. So he ramped up his efforts to do lunch every day at the church and gather with those men at the noonday hour. He took it as a good sign. Before long, the building was overflowing. A luncheon had to move time and time again because the demand was so high. The most intriguing element of what later became called the Fulton Street Revival was its ripple effect. Offices began to close in New York City, mind you, at the noonday hour. Fulton Street became the talk of the town. Men telegraphed prayers back and forth across the city, and other cities began to emerge to host their own expressions of that lunch franchise as godly meetings were popping up all over New York and in the surrounding region. The center of the meeting was prayer, and it was okay to come late or leave early, and men stood to share their testimonies of what God was doing in their lives. It wasn't a place for well-known preachers or eloquent teaching. It was a place for the working class businessmen who wanted to gather and share in the things of God. And some historians went so far as to say that that Fulton Street Revival was a third great awakening in our nation's history because it lasted for two years and saw as many as a million decisions for Christ. Given the influence of New York City, one could only estimate both the national and international impact of Lamphere's small group and simple lunch breaks. In many ways, what Lampier desired was to see the urgency housed that we read this morning in Isaiah 64 come to pass in his own day. It's a sense of urgency that he wanted to see come to fruition that led him to not only pray but persevere through hard times and press on, which led to transformed lives and ultimately the revival of his city and the nation. 
So this morning, as we begin in this season of Advent, I'd consider ask you to consider that same urgency today as we look at Isaiah 64 together. To rediscover, if you will, the urgency of Advent, which this season brings before us, and three lessons that emerge from our text. So if you are in person, follow along either on the screens or with your Bible as we look at it together today. In this section of Isaiah, there's a fervency of prayer that the power of God would be so manifest that it breaks forth in the world. There's a yearning that God would rend the heavens, as Isaiah puts it, and come down, parting the vast curtain that separates him from us, so that his presence would be known and felt, felt in the way that the mountains quake, that um, felt as though brushwood fires bursts into fire with flames around it, or when water boils because of the flame that has been held against it for so long. There's an urgency in these opening verses of Isaiah that can't be missed. It's a yearning and a desire for God to act and to move. We know, of course, this side of salvation history, that God wouldn't ultimately act in that way until Jesus stepped into the world. It wasn't an immediate answer to prayer, but one whose urgency and passion was housed in a way that let Isaiah never give up from failing to look for it, hope in it, or press on toward that end. My friends, that is what the church needs to rediscover today. Such passion as believers, such urgency as Isaiah, and so many down throughout salvation history, like Jeremiah Lamphere, and so many names we could list down through the ages, not for things merely to go back to a sense of what was, but to find that all things will be set right, which only comes when Jesus returns. And that's what this season of Advent is all about. It's not merely to prepare for Christmas, while it does include that, but also to prepare by recapturing an urgency for the preparation of the day of the Lord's return. Advent, that word, as you know, quite literally means coming. And so we prepare for that moment, and we persevere for that moment, and we press on towards that moment in such a way that it shapes the here and now, leading us to that moment. But how do we do that? I believe we recapture such a sense of urgency in three ways that are before us if we press on through this text. The first actually comes in verses 3 and following, where Isaiah first recounts the awesome deeds of God and points to the many ways in which God has acted in history. Even at times, as he notes, when they were not even sought after or looked for. And he continues in verse 4 to say that um, how unique God is. There's no one like him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard a God like our God. Those who wait for him will find him, and he never fails to meet those with such true faith and sense of desire to find him. And I think therein, in the, in the tone of those few verses, perhaps is the first lesson that assists us in recapturing anew this urgency of Advent. And it's this, to recount, 
to recount who God is. At times, in the ways that he's acted without our asking and not in our timing, and to recount who he is, who is like unto God. To be prepared for Jesus' return means that we look back throughout salvation history in the ways that he has acted on our behalf and on our behalf in ways that we didn't even realize it. And the primary way we do that, of course, is to be rooted in Scripture. It's there from cover to cover that his acts of salvation history are recorded. And we have to be students of it, to dig into it and to digest it. Not just merely hearers of it passively, but those who are doers of it, not merely in action, but those who dig into it. And I believe that will be our focus as a church for 2021. We've got to solidify that foundation more fully if we hope to build upon it more poignantly in the years to come. But you can begin now by making that focus part of your schedule whether it's opening the emails we send you on Mondays with reflection questions on this, joining in on Sunday mornings at 9 for Bible study, or midweek, the opportunities abound. A second way that I believe we can recapture uh, this urgency through recounting is not just objectively, but on a personal level, recounting the acts that God has done in our own lives. Make it a part of your regular prayer life to begin or end, or begin and end, recounting with thanksgiving what God has done for you. To think about the little things. We've done it this past week, hopefully, thinking on the many ways that God has tended to us, has sustained us in hard times, has provided us life and breath, has given us recuperation from illness or prevention from it. But we can recount it in numerous ways to make that a routine in our lives, and then perhaps to even keep logs of the more poignant moments where God has acted either in answer to our prayers or perhaps in ways that they were answered to our prayers that we didn't even utter, but God knew before we would even ask. Keep a jog uh, of those in your phone or uh, on a journal or in your Bible in the margins or somewhere where you'll see them. Because doing so keeps us oriented. It keeps us leaning in to see him act again, to see what God will do next, to see what will be fulfilled ultimately upon his return, but the many ways that he's ushering it in each and every day with each and every moment, first in the continual conversion of our own hearts, but in the redemption of the world around us and in the hearts that we encounter therein. The first part of verse 5 centers upon this fact where we joyfully, work righteousness, and remember God's ways. But then we notice if we turn back to verse 5, in the second half there's a hard shift that takes place, an abrupt change of tone and focus, which brings before us a second lesson to recapturing the sense of urgency found in this season of Advent. Isaiah uses in verses 5 and 6 and following four similes to describe the long-standing patterns of God's people. The first is like a leper, both infected and infectious, due to their sin cycle that they continue to rotate through in verse 6. And then in the latter half, we see they're likened to a leaf. That is, um, their righteous deeds will soon fade and wither and crumble because of their wayward hearts. It has no fruit. 
And the third is likened to the wind, where their iniquities toss them to and fro rather than being grounded. They're, liftless, they're lifeless, listless, and brittle. And lastly, they melt because God has hidden his face due to the very nature of their sin. The message is clear in those verses. There's a call to repent, to return to God, to recapture who they are as God's people, both in their desire and their will and their posture before the Lord that leads them to lean more fully into him. And perhaps therein, as this season reminds us, is a second lesson, one of repentance, one that reorients us, one that turns us from lesser things that don't deserve our time, our energy, and our attention to that which does. My friends, we need to repent of the lackluster and the complacency, as well as our lukewarm approach towards God. We have placed at times uh, in our lives our focus on the wrong things, majored in the minors, and we're called to first repent of those things and to repent and turn to the Lord in ways that we know are most needful. In the ways that at times we have allowed the name Christian to be synonymous, or even worse than, the culture around it. Um, and acting in ways um, that don't call the world higher or to something greater, but wallow around with it in the things that are far less than our pursuit in the character of Christ Jesus. At times those are the big areas that we know between we and the Lord that we need to work on and continue to work on. Those are the obvious ones. The ones that are less obvious are often the ones that seem smaller, and so we overlook them, but they can be just as dangerous. What we say, the offhanded remarks, what we type, what we proclaim, what we portray speaks volumes. Do we add to the chaos and the confusion, or do we call others from it? So we're called to first look at our hearts. I've been called to look at mine as well. We are all called to do that work. And to repent, not merely in word, but in deed. To turn from that which not only has been said or done, but as Father Greg mentioned last week, what's been omitted and what we've left undone toward that end. Amendment of life, as the church calls it, is not lip service, but genuine change. And it begins first by taking inventory, but then looking at what needs to change in our day, in our life, in our time, in our heart, in our desires, so that these changes may take root whether it's returning to times with the Lord that got neglected in the midst of a season that we thought we could just hunker down for a little while and get through, but now the months drag on, or whether it perhaps is reengaging the things we've put off because we've decided um, to neglect certain things because of what became most pressing. Or perhaps it's proclaiming peace rather than our own opinions or pointing to scripture rather than the latest news articles that align with our thoughts. Or whether it's taking seriously the call to engage the sea of homes that are around us in this, the fastest growing area of the nation where people pour in from every other state. But we hold back because we give ourselves the out that we're not equipped or we don't know how or someone else will do it or some larger group will tend to it but it is indeed our own work to do. We're called to make a shift that recaptures the sense of urgency that these verses and this season of Advent calls us to be about. Because the last lesson 
is one that carries us onward as we reach not only kind of the end of our reading, but the end of the journey as we look at it, back in verse 8. We remember, of course, that from a place of recounting, from a place of repentance, then we recognize who we are rightly in God's eyes. Namely, that we are clay in the hands of the potter. We're called to be malleable. We're called to be shaped. We're called to recognize that we are precious in his sight. And he's forming us into something far greater than what we purpose or anyone purposes for us. And that from such a recognition and from such a place, we can recognize that we are called to be ready. To be ready for that day, yes. But to be ready daily. To be open to what God is doing in our lives to be molded and fashioned into the men, the women, and the children that God has purposed us to be. For you are precious in his sight, and he deigns and purposes for you greater things than you could ever envision for yourself. But we have to be open to his leadings and guidings and movings and promptings towards that end, and unafraid to transition into new seasons, to be molded in new ways, to be squished and ironed out on one side and shaped on another. Because God is forming us daily if we let him. And even in spite of all of the forming, that is the most peaceful and the most purposeful place to be in in this life. But not unlike Jeremiah Lamphere and so many down through the ages, it may not happen all at once. And there will be discouragements along the way. But our urgency should keep us pressing in, unwavering and unmoving in our commitment to see it come to pass in the readiness of our life and in the lives of others we reach. I continue to pray revival will come, but it must begin first with us. And this season of Advent reminds us, quite literally in its wording, that we are called to be prepared for that coming of Jesus, that we desperately need to recapture in our own lives and in the life of the church. For when we do so, as we recount his goodness and reorient our lives daily, and stay ready for his return, we move at his promptings as he directs in the meantime. And if we would individually ask God what that looks like for us, as well as culturally and corporately for us, he will move in mighty ways, I believe, in the days and months and years to come. Again, it may not be instant, but now may be a season of preparation whereby God is starting something new, or calling to strengthen us in disciplines and patterns that we persevere in, or to engage our gifts and talents in ways they have not been fully utilized, to be creative, to take inventory, and not merely to bunker down, but to press on boldly and strike out in new ways that God has led us. Our bishop, Bishop Reed, a couple weeks ago at a meeting I attended, noted something rather interesting in history. Many, as we go through this season of the pandemic note that it's likened unto that Spanish flu at the turn um, of the 1900s. But he said, notice, if you will, what happened on the heels of that um, virus or that pandemic ending. We reached what was called the Roaring Twenties. But due to the lack of moral guidance from the church in that season, it was one of the greatest ages of debauchery and moral failure that our culture has seen. And he said, let it not be so with us. Let's not bunker down and hope for the best, but let this be a season that prepares us so that the church can be poised to engage a culture that's going to need direction 
when it comes up for air beyond the other side of this season. Now is the preparatory time for that. And this season calls us to that work to be prepared for whatever is next. So start that work today. Again, re-engage it once more or continue it corporately as we see what God has for us next. Lean into that anticipation. Don't lose that sense of urgency. Let the words of Jesus ring forth from this place in our own hearts, which almost ends in a haunting echo. Stay awake. Be ready. Don't neglect what is most needful. Because that day will come, and we're called to be prepared for it, not as one who has it sneak up on them as a thief in the night, but one who welcomes it as a welcomed guest when it does arrive in our Lord's return. So may we be awake, may we be ready, and may we press on until the day of the Lord's return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.